through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings and welcome to the 24th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. This is Julia Beck, reporting for WLRN's second year anniversary edition. That's right, WLRN has been working together collectively for two years to bring you the most current news, politics, and analyses for and by women from around the world. This month's edition trains the microphone on women creators and sustainers. We will hear from Selma Miriam and Noel Fury, the founding members of Bloodroot Vegetarian Restaurant, Maria Klemperer-Johnson of Hammerstone Carpentry, who is in the business of empowering women one swing at a time, and Judith Acosta of the Allied Jane Collective, a group that gave women a choice when the government wouldn't. Before we get started, we'd like to announce the winner of WLRN's Midwest Women's Herbal Conference free ticket giveaway. We announced in our special edition last month that the third email we received from our listeners would get a free ticket to this year's conference. That lucky email was sent in to us by... Rose Hayes Deneen from Madison. Congratulations, Rose. Your ticket gets you three days of wisdom, women, and the woods. Have a great time. Courtesy of the Midwest Women's Herbal Conference and your sisters at WLRN. And now, here are the WLRN headlines for this Thursday, April 5th, 2018, as prepared and read by Thistle Pedersen. In November of 2016, a family in Oakland, California was murdered and their home set ablaze. The man responsible is finally being tried for his crimes. During preliminary hearings in the beginning of March, officers and witnesses testified in the Alameda County Superior Court that trans-identified male Dana Rivers was found at the scene the night of the murders, covered in blood, holding a gas can, and reeking of gasoline. Neighbors heard gunshots in the night and saw one victim, 19-year-old Benny Wright, stumbling wounded in front of the house. The bodies of two women, Patricia Wright and Charlotte Reed, in addition to their son, Benny, were found on the property shot and stabbed. Rivers surrendered immediately. Despite telling officers at the scene he suffered from what testifying officer Sidney Cofford referred to as mental health issues, he has been found competent to stand trial. 
At the time of this report, the next court date for this case is Monday, April 16th. WLRN researched this case and found that most media outlets covering the story referred to Rivers as she, which creates confusion about Rivers' sex, which is male. Through time, feminists are concerned about the skewing of statistics and data collection about male murderers and rapists due to being counted as females in official records. A black councilwoman in Rio de Janeiro who was popular for her work around police brutality was shot dead on Wednesday, March 14th, in what appeared to be an assassination, local law enforcement said. Marielle Franco was killed in Rio while driving back from a black women's empowerment event. On the night of her murder, 38-year-old Franco attended and live-tweeted a panel of young black female speakers about creating more structural opportunity for black women. She left the event with a press officer and her driver, Anderson Pedro Gomez. In the middle of their drive, Two men in a separate vehicle reportedly approached and shot a gun into their car nine times. Franco and Gomez were killed. Shortly before her death, Franco spoke out about the way that police officers treat favela residents, calling their behavior, quote, rough and violent, unquote. She also spoke out against President Michel Temer's decision to send military troops to Rio to contain escalating violence there. Federal law enforcement said that it's beginning an investigation into Franco's assassination. Amnesty International urged the necessity of identifying the context, motive, and responsibility for the murder. Franco, a sociologist, was elected in 2016 as part of the Leftist Socialism and Liberty Party, PSOL. During her time on the council, she introduced bills that would have initiated advocacy campaigns around sexual violence and the incarceration of black youth. Franco won her race with a 46,000 vote margin in a country that is known for having particularly poor rates of female representation in politics. When she was elected, she became one of only six women on Rio's 51-person city council. Her identity as a black woman is especially notable as Brazil continues to struggle with racial inequality. Brazilian singer Elza Suarez identified Franco as being part of the lesbian community. In her capacity as a council member, Franco attempted to institute a Lesbian Visibility Day in Rio. International Women's Day is celebrated on March 8th every year, ever since 1917, when women gained suffrage in Soviet Russia. It began in 1909 and was initiated by the Socialist Party of America. In 1910, at the International Socialist Women's Conference in New York, it was suggested that a Women's Day be held annually. On March 8th, 2018, Anti-woman incidents occurred on the day set aside to acknowledge women's struggles and women in politics. In England, female trade union official Paula Lamont was surrounded by trans activists and driven off a Bechtu picture house picket line. Lamont, who is an elected member of Bechtu Sector Executive Committee, SEC, said that while she normally is a confident person, the completely one-sided and unprovoked incident had left her really shaken. In footage captured at the Piccadilly Picture House Central Picket on March 8th, 
Lamont is surrounded by protesters who had joined the picket and are believed to be entirely unconnected with Prospect Bektu. The mob that surrounded Lamont can be heard shouting, Turf! 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 Get her out of here! She's a turf! Which is an acronym for trans-exclusionary radical feminist and is commonly used as an insult towards women who question proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act in the UK. Lamont had attended a meeting organized by A Woman's Place UK, an organization dedicated to exploring the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act. Her attendance at this meeting is what officials thought provoked the attacks on the picket line. Meanwhile, in Spain on March 8th, millions of women walked out of their jobs and onto the streets to highlight women's work in society and gain visibility for women's rights. They chanted, the Ministry of Inequality about Spain's government and feminist strike. Unions said 5.3 million women joined the 24-hour strike, backed by 10 unions and some of Spain's top women politicians. Hundreds of thousands of women joined street protests across Spain, shouting, if we stop, the world stops. On Monday, March 19th, Mississippi's governor signed into law the most restrictive abortion measure in the United States, which was immediately challenged in court by abortion rights advocates who say it is unconstitutional. Republican Governor Phil Bryant said he was proud to sign the bill banning abortion after 15 weeks of gestation, with only some exceptions, according to a statement from spokesman Knox Graham. Quote, I am committed to making Mississippi the safest place in America for an unborn child, and this bill will help us achieve that goal, unquote, Bryant said. The law takes effect immediately. Previous Mississippi law banned abortion at 20 weeks after conception, similar to limits in 17 other states. Meanwhile, in India, after eight women from the Jawaharlal Nuru University in Delhi went on record accusing professor and prominent academic Atul Jori of sexual harassment, he was finally arrested on the 20th of March, only to be granted bail within two hours of his arrest. Angered by these developments, the students of the university went on a peaceful protest march through the city. The protest that was against sexual harassment was faced by extreme amounts of violence. Women were assaulted, manhandled, and forcibly stripped by the police force. They were then taken to the police station where they were photographed without their consent. And finally, they were falsely charged under a law which prohibits, quote, outraging the modesty of a woman. This incident comes at a time when female students across the country are organizing in order to gain rights which ensure their most basic safety and comfort and are demanding better institutional bodies for dealing with sexual harassment in educational institutions. On the 20th of March, women from Jamia Millia Islamia University in India won a historic battle against some of the most restrictive rules and regulations faced by female students in the country. Until then, in the name of keeping women safe, women students had curfews at 8 p.m. in the evening, did not have access to libraries, common rooms, and other student facilities, and had to, quote, get permission 24 hours before leaving their hostel. These 
were all adult women in universities who had to follow these rules while the men in the same university had to follow none of them and had almost complete freedom. These rights were won by the women after sustained organized protests. On March 13th, also in India, 12 13-year-old girls from an all-girls school in Calcutta were forced to confess in writing to, quote, having committed indecent acts as their teachers thought they were lesbians. They were humiliated and told, quote, write that you have put your hands in your friend's blouse, that you've tickled them under their skirt, hugged them and held their hands, unquote. Having been forced to say that they were lesbians, they were then threatened with expulsion. In a witch hunt-like scenario, their parents were told that the girls suffered from homosexuality. In response, the chief minister of the state, completely missing the point, said that the school would have been wrong in punishing them in case the allegations were false. If they were true, however, he said that the school cannot be expected to be lenient. He further added that lesbianism will not be allowed in our schools. On Tuesday, April 3rd, four people were injured when a shooter opened fire at the Silicon Valley headquarters of YouTube before turning the gun on themselves. The violence broke out just after noon in a courtyard outside YouTube's main building in the San Francisco suburb of San Bruno. Police have identified the shooter as Nassim Najafi Agdam, but have not yet cited a motive. Agdam was a frequent uploader to YouTube who'd had videos banned from the streaming service for, quote, multiple or severe violations of its policy. In one online video, Agdam accused YouTube of censoring and depriving them of income from advertising. Democracy Now! and all major media outlets are reporting the incident as a, quote, rare case of a mass shooting conducted by a woman. The police are also reporting the shooter's sex as female in their official press release published on the San Bruno Police Department's website. They say the shooter, quote, has been identified as Nassim Najafi Agdam, a 39-year-old female resident of San Diego, California. There has been speculation online by some news sources, much of it since taken down, that the shooter was in fact male. If any of our WLRN listeners have screenshots of news media posts with the term, quote, trans woman, unquote, used to describe the shooter, please send them our way to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. We'll post them without identifying the people who made the original post of the information. Any information about the shooter would be greatly appreciated. We will continue to follow this story as it unfolds, but are certain that a scrubbing of media reports has happened, and the sex of the shooter cannot be known for certain at the time of this broadcast.
was Amy Carroll Webb with her song, I Come From Women. Today's first guests are the owners of Bloodroot Vegetarian Restaurant, a radically feminist and lesbian separatist bookstore and eatery in coastal Connecticut that serves up seasonal and cruelty-free dishes, as well as your favorite feminist writings. Bloodroot welcomes women and men from all walks of life, from famous feminist philosophers to your average Joe. On a recent visit to the restaurant, WLRN's Julia Beck had the pleasure of sitting down with Selma and Noel, Bloodroot's mothers, to learn about their history. Can you tell me about yourself? <laughs> you want to go first? Uh, well, I just turned 83 years old. Okay. Wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> and um, Pisces. <laughs> I keep saying this, Noel and I feel we're really lucky because we've had this long life, 41 years at Bloodroot, in a really beautiful spot, overlooking the water, gardens outside. We love to cook. We still love to cook, especially the more we can discover about vegetarian and vegan foods. And we really like the people who come in here. And the thing that as I've said to a lot of you, is we didn't think that there were any radical dykes anymore. <laughs> we thought we were the last living ones. <laughs> but, you know, this was... Well, where is everybody? <laughs> yeah. So we figure you all are our granddaughters, and we are just thrilled. <laughs> it's right, age-wise. granddaughters, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. So how did great. you two meet? We met at a national organization for women, uh, conference. This is at about 76 or so, something like that, or maybe even earlier. Earlier, earlier than that, yeah. Yeah. 75. yeah. And I, I walked in. I was a housewife with two children, and I was miserable. <laughs> and uh, I walked into this place, and I saw a lot of women sitting around and looking comfortable and like they liked their lives. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something here for me. And there was. It really got me started on a journey that is not ended yet. So how was Bloodroot founded? Well, it's sort of a longer story, but I think there are a lot of really good feminist women, like right now, okay? But until I could think of myself as a lesbian, I probably wouldn't have left the marriage, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, women become dykes for any number of reasons. And I was straight. I was absolutely straight. But I think that what happened to me, the woman who sort of brought me out, she was so competent. She was about to leave for California. She had her own van. This was unthinkable to me. You know, I had lived with my parents, and then I lived with a husband, and, you know, they drove. And you know what I mean? I was not competent. There wasn't any way I could imagine living by myself or even living with another woman. 
And she said to me, you know, you're really a lesbian. Said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's nice of you to say. But <laughs> And her name, I might as well say it, because uh, she's long gone, Elizabeth Hatcher. She was a, a jeweler. And then, you know, after she left, I'd get up some morning and say, I'm really a lesbian. And then, <laughs> and then I'd go, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> but once I could begin to think of myself that way, then I could begin to think that I really didn't want to stay in the marriage. Because we knew women who had flings with other women, but they they couldn't go any further with it. And I had been designing gardens for a while, not making a lot of money. And Noel and I were, were in a rap group together with other women. And we talked all the time in the rap group. Um, and one of the things I talked about was how I had set this money aside. And of course, I had a joint account with my husband, right? And, and everybody thought it would be the feminist thing to do would be to put it in the same joint account. And I couldn't. I don't know why I couldn't, but I couldn't. Well, once I split up with him, I took that money. There were some people who loaned us money, and my parents eventually came through that they were not happy. <laughs> but, you know, but I couldn't have done it if I hadn't had that selfish thing that this is mine and I'm, I'm taking care of myself. It was that business of being confident, of being able to take care of oneself that, as far as I'm concerned, is the measure of lesbianism to me. You know, I mean, yeah. it was at the beginning, mm -hmm. and it still is in a lot of ways. Okay. And, you know, when we did this rap group, which we did for a long time with a lot of women, and some and I were both in it with friends, when she decided to do Bloodroot, and we had talked about every feminist issue you can imagine, <laughs> our mothers, orgasms, women, blah, blah, on and on. <laughs> but we had really done it all, you know. So we could either go back around again, which didn't seem uh, exactly useful, and Selma decided that she was going to do this, and I thought, I've got to go with her, <laughs> which is what I did. There was some future there that was feminist and female, and uh, that was definitely for me. I was very uncomfortable in being a straight mother. I, I just really hated the relationship, and I loved women, so this was ideal. <laughs> You understand, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. And Jumping off a cliff, right? We used to yeah. say, we jumped off a cliff. Really, we jumped out of this life off a cliff. Yeah. And really, we were very separatist in those days. All of our interactions were with women. We did have men customers, but they didn't have any relevance to our lives. We were making this uh, blood root, and um, it was very separate. So what's the significance of the blood root plant? It is a flower that comes early in the spring. It's called bloodroot because the root bleeds red juice. It was used as a dye plant by Native Americans. I like the flower, and most of all, it's rhizomatous, so the rhizomes split, and each piece has its own leaf, and they're vertically furled, which I think is so interesting. And the flower comes through the top, and it's white. And it doesn't last very long. So it's kind of like being individual but connected, it just seemed like a good idea. And then, of course, we were like, blood root or vegetarian restaurant. And I thought, oh, they're thinking about menstruation, so we're going to name it that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because... Why not? Yeah. Right. So why is it a vegetarian restaurant? Okay. Uh, well... All right. Let me talk yeah, a little bit sure. about that. Uh, back when, in the rap group, there was a woman named Priscilla Farrell. And she particularly was adamant that you couldn't have a feminist restaurant and not be vegetarian. And the reason is the cruelty to animals. 
which is so similar to the cruelty to women. And so that made sense to Selma, who considered it a challenge yeah. uh, to learn vegetarian well, it cooking. wasn't vegetarian. Yeah, none, neither one of us were when we started. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really argue it when you see some of the things that happen to uh, animals in farming, you yeah. know, and mm-hmm. things that happen to women in various situations. So, mm-hmm. so there wasn't an argument. And besides that, you wouldn't want to make one because it was, once again, something that took us kind of farther into the future in a certain sense and a more radical thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd go home from starting here, and then I'd cook chicken. But I, I got over it, you know? And, and it was, like Noel said, a challenge. Yeah. And that's what makes life fun, doesn't it? To have a challenge. I mean, if you believe in it, you've got to believe in it first, and then figure out what's going to fit. What kind of events do you have events, there? Uh, we had Adrian Rich. We had Mary Daly. We had Audrey Lord. We had the Kambahi Women's Collective. Collective. We and had Farron and... Right? Yeah. Oh, Farron. Farron. You know, sure. yeah. And a lot of, uh, you know, musicians mm-hmm. came. Mm-hmm. Because we had Wednesday Night for Women. So. Mm. That's when we did our program. Yeah. Alex Dopkin, yeah. you know. In that time, when we were doing that, women would fill the place up. When yes. we first started, they would fill the place up. Yeah. And we got into the 80s, and they got less and less interested or needy of a women's space. Right. So we didn't have the same group of people coming to the restaurant, and we couldn't keep women's night women only because it had to be full, and we had to be able to say, I'm sorry, you can't come in, you needed a reservation, and we're filled if there was... Uh, uh, men coming, so so we just it no longer made sense to do that, and which is unfortunate. But that's you know things move along, and so we stopped the women's night, and very occasionally maybe since then we've had things. Yeah, and they haven't been necessarily successful. Well, when uh, Andrea Dworkin was here, that oh, was yeah. Andrea Dworkin was fabulous, yeah. and and we also had Mary Daly here, uh-huh. and she Many was times, yeah. unbelievable. And Audrey. You know. Yeah, and Audrey. I mean, they're really brilliant, radical women, and they're such an inspiration for us, and they kind of kept us going in a lot of ways. And what was kind of fun, um, Audrey and, um, oh, God, I can't think of her mother's name. Yet. Michelle Cliff. Well, no. No, oh, sorry. Adrian. Adrian. Michelle. Yeah. And uh, the two women who, um, I can't mm. remember any names. Anyway, they were in New York. They were friends together. And every time one of them wrote a book, and they all wrote books, yeah. okay, they'd have a party. Mm-hmm. And Audrey wanted us to come. You're and talking we, about Claire Koss? Claire Koss yeah. and... Uh, I don't remember her yeah, name. Yeah, right. Anyway. <laughs> but anyway... You just wait. <laughs> and, and we would go. Yeah, just go with it. And, and here were these poets, and, you know, and, and what do you do? Uh, we're cooks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it was this big lesbian parties, you know. The but fancy lesbians, you yeah, know, New York, yeah. Upper, well, Upper East Side. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. But Audrey insisted that we be there, which was really kind of neat. Anyway, <laughs> so that was one scene which was really interesting. And, you know, we were here, you know, we weren't part of that scene, but it was, it was kind of fun to, to go there. Well, you've been here for so long. You're you're gonna you're gonna celebrate your forty first anniversary yeah. in like two weeks. Congratulations right. on that. Yeah. You have seen feminism move. You've seen the movement grow and change. So over those forty years, what have you seen women do with this movement? And where do you want to see it go from here? Oh. Really, we just felt like, oh well, we're gonna do this because we believe in it, and it it's what we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Period. Okay. 
But all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, we had fucker Donald Trump come along, and he released something. He released anger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you had that first women's march, and I thought, oh, that's good. Okay, that's nice. We'll see what happens with that. And then we had a second women's march. I thought, oh, maybe we've got a movement. And then, for heaven's sakes, me too, really. <laughs> and, yeah. and now we're seeing women run for public office. We're seeing Black Lives Matter. It feels like maybe something is about to happen. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that in November we're going to see a lot of Republicans out of office. Okay? I'm hoping. And a lot of women in office. Right. And it could be all kinds of wonderful things, and it could be it's going to flip again because that's what happens. And you're going to have these, these divisions like we did in the feminism. I mean, we figured lesbian feminists wanting pornography? Ridiculous. But you know what happened? It happened. And uh, this is early 80s. All of a sudden, there were these women making pornographic movies and things and thinking that we should love that. And it was, you know, very divisive. I'm hoping that at least while I'm still alive, we're going to see some real movement. You know, but the, the trans thing is terrible because this <laughs> is a nice segue, right? <laughs> well, because it's so anti-feminist. It's so, and I just figure because I got to say this over and over again. This is the thing about femininity and masculinity. You know, they are these things. And, you know, so if you don't feel particularly feminine, well, you might as well turn yourself into a man. And that's if what they want to do <clears throat> nail polish and such, you might as well turn yourself into a woman. Because you're not fitting into the stereotypes. So the stereotypes, so, that's the word I could You know, find. and the, the, men, the men that do this, I mean, they, they don't fit into the male stereotype. So, you know, so then they think, well, I might as well be a woman or pretend to be, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's a lot of... And, and that's not feminism. Right. Feminism is about stretching the parameters of what it is to be a man or a woman. And uh, what was her name who wrote uh, Another Mother Tongue? Judy Grant. Mm, yeah. Judy Grant. And yeah. she talked about that, about how the gay men and the lesbian women have always stretched their communities. They are on the periphery of the community. So they could see what the community could be. That's what we believed. And so when you say that femininity is, is a model that you should copy... It, it's just then you disgusting. get Bruce Jenner <laughs> with his nails. Yeah, <laughs> or or you get women in seven-inch high heels who are breaking their legs all the time. This is not feminism. Feminism is to treasure the core of what you are and realize that there's a lot of room to move around in that core. You know, without doing destructive damage damage to your body uh, in any way. You know, with all the things that go on with that. So. What do you think is the importance of female-only space? <laughs> Why is that important? As soon as a man walks into a space, every woman, lesbian, straight, bi, whatever, changes. Yep. Everyone. Yep. Right. And we don't want that to happen here. Okay? And we have a lot of men friends who come here and, you know, have a son, blah, blah. But uh, <laughs> that is what happens, and we can't help it. That is, women can't help it. I mean, there may be a rare one here. Maybe one of you thinks you could avoid, you know, giving a little extra attention to him or, or even in the negative responding to him. We don't want that. And we've been very lucky that we haven't had to do that. Yeah. Even a nice young man, you know, would not be a good thing in any women's space. And that's why, because women just... It, it just, changes. It changes. It's really remarkable.
So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Hey, Jenna, how are you? I'm good. Just ordered some really cool media merch from WLRN. Check it out. The mug is silver. It's really going to stand out at my coffee meetup with my gal pals once a month. Silver? Whoa. That is over the top for a mug. What does it say on it? It says Women in Media, and it has this totally excellent radical feminist logo on it designed by WLRN's graphic designer, Natasha Petrov. The symbol is red, and the lightning bolts firing off from the microphone are yellow. Look at this poster. It's an electrical storm against a dark sky behind the WLRN logo in white. I love the powerful imagery and how it pops. Those are awesome. Where can I order them? On the WLRN WordPress site under their new merch tab. The new WLRN goodies were created in celebration of WLRN's second year anniversary. WLRN has been on the airwaves for two whole years? That's amazing. If I order something, when will I get it? Well, they're taking pre-orders now, and we'll be shipping them out sometime this spring. Definitely by the end of June. Thanks, Jenna. Gonna order my silver mug with lightning bolts today. So awesome to support women's community radio. Definitely. We're building a movement one t-shirt and one mug at a time, sister. Blasting, Blasting off, off into, into the, the femisphere. Thanks, thanks for tuning in to WLRN's two-year anniversary edition. In our next interview, Jenna speaks with Maria Klemperer Johnson, carpenter and founder of Hammerstone Carpentry and School for Women. Hammerstone offers various programs that teach women basic carpentry and woodworking skills, drywall and electrical basics, and even an intensive that has you framing out a tiny house. Ms. Klemperer Johnson has spent the last five years teaching and empowering women and has more recently been in Puerto Rico helping in recovery efforts following the devastation of Hurricanes Irma and Maria and teaching people basic skills that they can use to rebuild themselves. For women interested in making a living in carpentry and construction, she says, I see solidifying basic skills as an essential way to get your foot in the door. It's helpful to be able to say, I know how to measure and mark and use a circular saw. For me, what worked was starting with small, local employers who will quickly see beyond your gender. I also think finding a woman tradesperson as a mentor can be super helpful, though perhaps hard to find. But mostly, I think you have to go for it, keep trying, and know that there are more and more of us out there every day. My name is Maria Klumperer Johnson. Um, I've lived in the Ithaca area since 2001 was when I moved here. I've always liked building and um, even as a kid, you know, my dad was a woodworker, as was my grandfather, and I, I was just always drawn to to building and specifically to woodworking and just thinking about how things were made and how things were put together, but it, it never really occurred to me 
that this was a trade that I could go into, um, that this was something that was open to me. I vividly remember this one summer. I went to school in California, and I stayed in California for the summer instead of coming home. And I was working at UC Berkeley in the library, and I was just getting really depressed. And I realized that the only thing that was going to shake me out of this depression was to build something. And so I got a, you know, a Sunset magazine that had plans for this, like, California-style Adirondack chair. And I went to the Berkeley Public Library, where they had a tool lending library, and I checked out some tools so that I could, I could build this little project. I, you know, all with hand tools, I built this little uh, Adirondack chair. And I vividly remember that. It was, like, it was a deep-seated need in me to, to build something. In 2001, I went and got a job in the trades. And that's where I realized that I could uh, do this creative work, work with my whole body, be using my fine motor skills, and be, be creating these really beautiful things. And getting to use my mind, I think that a lot of people don't realize how, how much you have to think as a carpenter. It was finally a, a trade that satisfied all these different aspects of my personality. Hammerstone is a construction company, right? Right. Well, they're under one sort of legal entity. There are two branches to the business. When did you decide to open the school? It's just for women, right? Yeah. So the Hammerstone School is, we teach classes that are just for women. I started teaching classes in 2013. So I had been working as a carpenter for about 12 years, 11, 12 years at that point. And even before that, I remember having thought, um, you know, I, I would love to teach carpentry classes for women. Winter of 2012-2013, uh, an acquaintance approached me, and she's now a great friend of mine. She said, I want to go to the tiny house. Do you think I can? And where should I go to learn? And I said, first of all, yes, I think you can. And first of all, don't go anyplace else. This actually offers me the perfect opportunity to start teaching these classes that I've wanted to teach. So in 2013, we started organizing the, the carpentry classes for women. And the, the first class that we offered, all we did to market that class was hang a couple flyers at Green Star, which is the local food cooperative. And within two weeks, we had a waiting list for that first class. That is how intense the demand was. So we, we offered those two six-day classes, and that was really the start of it. The bread and butter of our program is our two-day basic skills workshop, and that's really introducing women to um, the basic tools of the trade and some of the basic carpentry skills that you need to then go on and do anything. So we start by sharpening a carpentry pencil using a utility knife. We learn how to measure and mark the ins and outs of the tape measure, how to, how to mark the board to cut it how to draw a square line across the board. We learn how to cut, and we start by using a hand saw, and then we move to the circular saw, which is the largest possible that we use in that class. So students are getting introduced to the safety aspects of it using a tool that's a little bit less intimidating and a bit safer, and then we jump into some real power tools because that is a goal of ours, is to get women feeling comfortable using these fairly intimidating tools, and tools continuously told are dangerous and, and the subtext behind that is that we therefore shouldn't be using them. Making those tools safe, that then lets women go on and take the knowledge that they learned around the circular saw and extrapolate that to a table saw or a chop saw um, or other, other power tools.
And then we, in that basic skills class, we teach fastening both with a drill and a driver, using screws, and hammer and nails. So that's really the, the course that attracts the largest pool of students. And so we continue to offer that um, five or six times a year. What motivates you to continue the women's carpentry school? What motivates me to keep this going is the response of our students, right? Like every time I offer a class, I'm just re-energized by the enthusiasm of the women who participate and their personal stories of how they've been wanting to do this work and there aren't a lot of opportunities to learn it that are free from all the social BS surrounding women doing traditional men's work. So just that personal interaction that I have with women in our classes and hearing their stories and hearing their desire to learn this, that's what keeps me motivated. You mentioned your 101 class being the most popular. I love that you offer the other workshops, like the drywall class and the starter electrical class. To me, it's really exciting to offer courses that go beyond my personal area of expertise. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable doing electrical wiring for my own work, but it's not something that I've been trained in. So to have a professional electrician, woman electrician, to teach that class is really exciting. And then the drywall class, and this one is so funny because, you know, the electric is really sexy. Like, people really want to sign up for that class. Getting folks to sign up for a drywall class, and, and this resonates with me personally, it's like, some of these skills that you learn, they can be so frustrating when you're first starting. I mean, even driving a screw until you practice and practice and practice and get the little tips and tricks that work effectively, they can be so frustrating and a real turnoff. And then when you get it, all of a sudden there's this grace and it becomes pleasurable. Unfortunately, drywall, I haven't gotten to that point yet. And so for me, there's still this obstacle of like, oh, I'm going to try and I'm going to be sad. And I know that part of that is just doing it enough to get to that point where it flows and you're proficient and you feel efficient and it looks great when you're done. It just feels good when you know what you're doing and things happen the way you intend them to or when they don't go the way you intend them to, you know what what to do to, to fix it. If you're attempting to do something and you're just failing at it, it must kind of reinforce the idea of, oh, see, this is why women don't do these things. Like, no, you just need to learn how to do it and then you'll do it. Yeah, you that's know? a huge challenge. And I see that in the women in, in our classes and I see it in myself I, and I continue to feel it. When we do this work as a very tiny minority, only 3% of carpenters in the U.S. are women. That's a minuscule minority. When we step out and take a risk and try to do something like this, we feel the weight of proving our entire gender on our when we do it. And that is, it's really a crushing weight as you're trying to do something. That pressure to, like, make a perfect cut on the first try is what stops people from trying and failing and trying and failing. So we address that explicitly in our classes, the fact that as women, we're constantly told that we can't do this, and really it's just that we need to practice. We all need to practice, like, hundreds and hundreds of times of hammering a nail, of driving a screw, before it feels second nature. It's just muscle memory. I would love to hear about Puerto Rico. What were you doing there, and how were you able to do it? 
I would love to talk about it because it's basically what we've been working on for the past couple months. Ever since Hurricane Maria hit, I personally have felt driven to try to find a way to get down there and help. And then a friend of mine was involved in a volunteer trip. While she was down there, she texted me and said, there is so much work here. We have to find a way for you to plan a Hammerstone trip in March. In the interim, then, a group of three volunteers from that first trip started this organization called Rogues on Roofs, where they were just working on replacing roofs, and they got connected with the mayor of Budabo, which is the town in which they and then we were working, and were identifying projects that needed roofs with the mayor, and the mayor's office was helping purchase materials and had some labor force that they could contribute to Rogues on Roofs' work. And they identified a project where they had replaced the roof on this woman's house, but she still couldn't move back in because she had been without any roof, not even a tarp, for four months. And once she got a roof in a tropical island, you know, pretty much rains every day. And so her whole interior was water damaged. We wanted to make the work that Rogues on Roofs had already done of putting the roof on Pooch's house. We wanted to make that worthwhile, like actually get her back into her house so that you know, they weren't just putting a roof on a house that then nobody moved back into. My colleague, Julie Kitson, and I, we flew down in February for a little reconnaissance visit to, to see Pooch's house, determine if that was the project that we wanted to work on, and then also build some other connections, one of which was hooking up with the YWCA in San Juan. Um, and so that ended up being a really fruitful connection because when we came back, for this trip in early March, we, we ended up teaching a workshop at the YWCA. Excellent. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. So then we came back from this reconnaissance trip, and we had to figure out what the structure of this work trip was going to be. What we ended up doing was organizing a group of seven women builders, and we flew down for a 10-day trip and worked on the renovation of Pucha's house, which involved pulling out all of her moldy, waterlogged wall covering, dealing with the floor. So she had she had a concrete slab floor that had had linoleum on it. So we had to grind this whole concrete floor in order to tile. So we ground the floor, we tiled the floor. Our intention was to, as we opened up the walls, deal with, a, with whatever minor electrical patches needed to happen and then put the wall covering back on. But... What we found as we got into it was that the existing electric was such a mess that we could not, in good conscience, just put it back with a few patches as is. The wiring situation was really unsafe. They just ran Romex, which is the plastic-coated electrical wires through the house, and there were just so many places where rodents had chewed the plastic off the wire that there there was just bare copper. So what happens in that situation is if those two copper lines touch, they spark, and it's a, it's a hazard. In Puerto Rico, the way that they have to build is to actually run everything as conduit inside the walls, and that would protect those wires from being chewed by rodents. So as we were working, you know, we had this scope of work developed in our anticipated time frame. At a certain point, we realized that the situation there was so bad that we couldn't just patch it and put it back. The serendipitous thing that happened um, that made this decision easier for us was 
When we taught our carpentry workshop at the YWCA, we met a licensed woman electrician, one of maybe 18 women electricians on the island. So we made this connection with a local tradeswoman, which was exciting for us, something that we were hoping to have happen. And so we actually brought Lisa out to Kucha's. She took a look at it, and, and we talked through, like, what would be entailed in, in rewiring Kucha's house so that it would be put back together safely. This was, like, you know, two days before we had to return to the state. But we didn't have enough time to execute that work. So we came back and are now trying to figure out how to get back down there, contract with Lisa to rewire Pooch's house, and then do the rest of our work, which is basically rehanging new wall covering and hanging her doors and odds and ends detail work uh, to get it to where she can move back in. It's exciting to be able to like, actually work with a tradesperson on the island, right? not just bringing this external labor force to do this work, but to contract with um, someone on the island to do that work. Um, to build that connection with a, a tradeswoman is exciting. And she's been sharing photos with us of the workshops that she does. She teaches basic electrical and electrical safety workshops in the schools. And so, you know, she's a, a tradeswoman of the same sort of mindset as us of educating and letting people know that this is actually a career path for women and girls. Is there anything you'd like to add for our audience that is mostly lesbian and radical feminist? I spent 10 years being the only woman on a job site. And I have not had the opportunity to work with other women until I created up my own business and basically hired women. This work trip in Puerto Rico was the first time I got to work on a crew of a significant size where everyone involved was a woman. And every one of us down there, we were just like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. It was just nice to be appreciated for what we bring to the table, which is different, right? To see that recognized by other women and to not have to work through the inevitable BS that comes up any time you work with men. As good-hearted or well-meaning as they may be, there is always a level of explanation that has to happen on top of the work you do. I think I can speak for everybody who went on this trip. We're all just still kind of buzzing from that feeling of enjoying working with each other and trying to figure out how to continue to do that. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and and lending your voice to WLRN. Oh gosh, thank you so much. I'm, I mean, it's great to talk to people who, with whom this passion resonates. Hope to see you in class someday. If you're interested in Hammerstone's recovery efforts in Puerto Rico, visit GoFundMe.com slash Hammerstone in Puerto Rico, where you can see a time-lapse video of Pucha's home renovation and donate to help Maria get back and continue this necessary work. We are the ones... We are the ones we've been waiting. We are the ones, we are the ones we've been waiting. We are the ones, we are the ones we've been waiting. We are the ones, we are the ones we've been waiting. We are.
was We Are The Ones by Sweet Honey in the Rock. Our final interview today is with Judith Arcana of the Jane Collective, Chicago's pre-Roe underground abortion service that provided over 11,000 abortions in the 1970s. Judith has written extensively about her experiences, as well as on the topics of motherhood and morality. Go to juditharcana.com jane for more information. How did you first become a Jane? I met them, so to speak, when in the summer of 1970, I had a very late period, and like so many women in similar situations, I thought, oh my God, I'm pregnant, because I was not in a situation that would have been a good time to either have a child or, as I often think of it, to have been that child. So I got the telephone number and called, and they actually they were using an answering machine, which was extremely unusual in 1970. So I got a call back from a woman who said, hello, um, I'm Jane, and she suggested I get a pregnancy test, and turned out ultimately that I was not pregnant, although my period was very, very, very late. So I called her back, told her that I wasn't going to need the service, thanked her so much for doing it. And again, we talked, just as we had the first time, at some length, and she told me they were taking in new people in a month or two, and she thought that I would be interested, and I thought, oh, let's see about this. So I did go to that meeting and was very impressed with and taken with the spirit, the energy, and the intelligence of the women who were talking about the service and explaining it to the women who had shown up to learn about it. And I thought, yeah, it sounds like a really good thing to do. And so I signed up. What you did was, a, it was criminal homicide, a felony. Yes, when something is illegal, but it's something people want and need, then people find out about it. The police know who's doing it. The legal system folks, you know, lawyers, judges, etc., they know who's doing it. In a case like this, where the it is actually something very good, 
one hopes that a lot of other people find out who's doing it too. Abortion has, of course, a history of thousands of years, and in Chicago, as in other parts of this country, abortion was practiced by lots and lots of people all the time. Sometimes they were people who were licensed to practice medicine. Those folks were often the folks who were doing abortions. Also, midwives, nurses, women who had learned from their grandmothers all kinds of things about our bodies and how to use them and care for them and so on and so forth. So always, always there had been abortion. Therefore, I guess I want to say, there were people who knew and they would tell other people so that you hear stories all the time about a couple of women sitting in the park. One woman turns to the other and says, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm pregnant. I don't have enough money. We can't have another kid. And she says to this total stranger, do you know anybody? So while we didn't have an office and advertise, we protected ourselves by not telling a whole lot of people and not assuming that we could speak openly about the work, a certain amount of subtlety and discretion. Yeah, we kept it out of the mainstream of our lives. We didn't want to endanger the possibilities for ourselves and for the women who were coming through. Yeah. What a very thin line to have to to follow. It sounds like it, you know, but really it didn't feel like it. It just felt like this is really good work. It's illegal. I'll have to be careful, but I'm going to do this. And a whole bunch of other women thought similarly, and so we did. So it's not like every day people were thinking, well, well, another day of danger. You know what I mean? That just was not part of the consciousness. You, as a much younger person than I am now, and having grown up in a time in which the minds and feelings about abortion and motherhood in the United States have been quite deliberately shaped by the anti-abortion movement. Forty-five years of deliberate, conscious, political action on the part of the anti-abortion movement has created a mindset that doesn't encourage, shall I say, folks thinking the way we did. There was this concerted effort in all the states and federally to pass laws or get people into office, whether it was a school board or a state legislature, who were anti-abortion and who spoke the language of murder and shame and stigma and who said stuff that suggested that this has always been anathema and a horror in the eyes of the Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that was an action. That was a movement. They worked on it, and they did a really good job. And so now a lot of folks have come up in that mindset in the United States. It was it's so emotional. It's so easy to use, especially in a misogynist society. It's like using race in a racist society. 
society, you know. You can get people, bam, it's like a flash bomb, you know. You can get people to pay attention to what you're saying. And if you are clever about it, get them to come around to your way of thinking. It's not surprising, really. Now, now, in 2018 in the United States, I don't know if I would, I believe I would not be so blithe. I believe that I would be thinking much more in terms of what you're calling or what you just called that thin line because the situation is more dire. People have been taught that abortion is murder, that women who have abortions are killing babies. They have, in fact, murdered doctors in political assassinations. They have set bombs in clinics so that there are elements of danger that simply did not exist when we were working. Part of what makes the anti-abortion movement think and feel that way is that they have decided, not unlike many other people in uh, a misogynist and patriarchal society, that while there is killing that is okay, like it's okay for the police to kill, it's okay for the military to kill, it's okay to kill animals to eat them, it's okay to kill plants to eat them, or to just get them out of the way if you don't like them, that killing in and of itself is not a problem for them. It's about women having the power to decide and to take action about killing. And also there's no distinction made by these folks usually between killing and murder. Murder, of course, being an evil act done literally with malice aforethought, as the law says, whereas killing in a whole bunch of circumstances may be neither malicious nor evil, I think that having an abortion, that that the decision to end a pregnancy and to to use that language, to kill an embryo or, or a fetus, is a motherhood decision. It's about what about the life of this child? What are you going to do about the life of this child? And the idea that a woman would have that kind of power is anathema to many, many people in the anti-abortion movement. Some of them haven't thought about it that way. But I think that that is a kind of fundamental set of concerns for a lot of those folks. So what's the difference here? What's the difference between actual justice and law? Law is somebody has an idea hey, let's make a rule in our city or our state or our country that people can't be out after 10 p.m. at night. And so they create a curfew, and that becomes an idea. Justice is about what is the righteous way to be in the world? What is a righteous way to be in the world? In the United States, of course, we had slavery. The economy of this nation has grown out of hundreds of years rooted in slave labor. People were owned as if they were things and used as if they were machines, and that was the law. Now, granted, I'm not giving examples of good laws, but I'm deliberately choosing hideous, evil, outrageous laws to make the point that law is a notion, an idea, and if the people 
who have that notion, have that idea, can muster the support for it, they can make their idea into a rule, into a law. But that doesn't mean that there's anything just, righteous, good, or valuable in human terms about it. Not at all. We've had many, many laws that are completely unjust. We need to think about all this and say, okay, so this is against the rules, but I see that the rules are not good and, in fact, are dangerous and damaging and hurting people, and I see a way that I can do something to stop that badness happening. So we actually have to be informed We have to think seriously. We have to talk to each other and think together. We have to make decisions about, okay, I guess I'm going to break this law because the law is wrong and bad. I want to talk a little bit about the roles you played as a Jane. I, like many Janes, had several different jobs, so to speak. Everybody at first was a counselor. That was the first thing we learned. I also was what we called callback Jane, which is to say that when people called in and left a message on the answering machine, I was the person who took those messages off, so I would bring the information and pass those cards of information around, and everybody would be choosing who they were going to counsel. So I was a counselor, I was a callback Jane, I was a driver, uh, you know, somebody had to drive every time. I was one of the people who began learning medical practice, so I was learning about dilation and curatage and inducing miscarriages for women who were further along in their pregnancies and how to handle the tools, et cetera, et cetera. I've had these relationships with total strangers where we did these extraordinary things together, all of them illegal and all of them deep and meaningful and important. And now I have all that inside of me as I grow older and older and older. Can you tell the story of your first day as a driver? On that day, the sister-in-law of a woman who had an appointment to have an abortion on that day, the sister-in-law called the police in her precinct. She was not in one of the neighborhoods where we used apartments for our work. So these cops were complete strangers to us. I mean, we knew that our cops knew about us because that's how it works in the world. And they followed me. First, they found the address that the sister-in-law sent them to, which was our front for that day, someone who had lent us their apartment to use as our front. And I'm proud to say that when we were in court, they announced that They lost me several times. We would act as if we thought we might be followed and take small streets and double back and stuff like that. So I felt very good about the fact that I had, in fact, held them off for a while. However, ultimately, they did manage to follow me. And when they got to the place where the abortions were being done, another apartment busted us. And everyone else who was working, and indeed everyone who had come, for an abortion and everyone who had come with them and was waiting for them at the front, their 
girlfriends, their mothers, their sisters, their boyfriends, their husbands, their children. There were over 40 people, ultimately, that the police took to the precinct at Cottage Grove. Anyway, so that's what happened on my first full day back on the job. What a day. Listening to you retell it. What a day. We always knew that it could happen. We sort of thought it wouldn't because we knew that our neighborhood cops were not against us. The rule was you never went to work without a telephone number in your pocket to call for a lawyer or someone in your family who would do that for you. And, you know, so we did that stuff. I and many other Janes have said this. I didn't actually think it was going to happen. We had started at about, I'm guessing about 8 or 9 that morning, which would be typical, and they came at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So there had been some women who had gone through, and they were they were gone by the time this happened, which is great. And at around midnight, they took us to the women's lockup downtown Chicago, which is where every precinct sent their people. And then we were fingerprinted and all of that, you know, had mugshots taken, et cetera. And so this little set of cover lawyers came to the women's lockup in the middle of the night, probably, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that, and took me out to talk to them because they had this plan that the night court judge is someone that we think will go for it if we explain to him that you are a nursing mother and we can get you out for low bail. And then when the other six go in the morning, whoever the judge is won't be able to ask for higher bail than that. There we were in our cells sort of, you know, knocking on the the metal walls to talk to each other and calling over the tops and I came back and I called out, oh God, it's such a movie, I called out, Jane's, and everybody said, what? And a couple other women said, who's Jane? Who's Jane? Because, of course, there were lots of women in there. And I told them the proposal, and they said, go, go. And the other women who were there, who also had small children, they were the ones who said to me, I would go if I could. You should go. Because I just, I didn't want to leave them, you know? Generally what happens to the women who are locked up is that they don't get such an option. You know what I mean? Right. Um, In terms of either class or race or um, immigrant status. I'm telling you, we were very, very lucky. We were fortunate, and also we were white. Ah. And this is not incidental. Were the Janes all white? Did you only employ, or did only white women work as Janes, or were there women of color? What do you mean about... In the beginning, the women who started it were all white. Through the middle period, there were, I think, certainly a great majority, if not all, whiteness. But by the end, there were there was at least one black woman and one Latina, and I, those I know, so I know that. A lot of the women who came through the service were not white. And so we had, in my view, an enormous responsibility to behave uh, in goodly ways in the face of these women of color who were certainly forced to deal with whiteness on a constant basis. And our goal was to offer to all women who would come to us this service. And so we had to be as conscious as a person could possibly be about race. 
Right. In our whiteness. Out of our whiteness. Many of our listeners are lesbians and radical feminists. Do you have anything that you would like to share with them? Two things. First of all, radical feminists, whatever their sexuality may be or the way they define themselves in terms of sexuality, are committed to or grow to be committed to this kind of work, whether it's abortion or some other fraught topic, action, subject, theme. Also, whenever I think about abortion and lesbians, I think about this memory that I have of being at a big conference at which this young woman stood up and announced herself as a lesbian and said, I just want to be sure that everybody here knows that lesbians have abortions too. And that sort of brought the house down. You know, first done silence, so bold, so out there, and then, you know, flaws, as one would hope. And the other thing that I think about that is lesbians were in the forefront of the work during the AIDS epidemic. A lesbian woman is someone whose identity and politics call out of her a need and a desire for justice. And I have always found that there are lesbian women in these movements in very serious positions. And this other thing about the sort of social and political and cultural identity, you don't go anywhere without your identity, you know, and you want to be conscious about it. Well, like Jane's in our whiteness, doing abortions with black women or other women of color, but predominantly black women in the neighborhoods where we worked and in Chicago as a city, there's a responsibility attendant to our identity. I'm talking here about what it means to know who we are, to investigate that on a consistent basis, because you've got to think about what it means in relation to other people and the rest of the world. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. Women's power is individual. Women's power is collective. Contrary to widely accepted opinion that women are naturally, inherently physically weak, it is my belief that women are stronger than they either realize or allow themselves to be. We live in a world where the benchmark for everything is men and the male experience. Being the quote-unquote weaker sex doesn't make a woman weak. It's a comparative used to deflate girls and to control women. The capacity women have to make, to build, to create something where there was nothing before is so great. I love hearing that a woman created something because she wanted it to exist and it didn't, so she made it. I usually hear that in terms of media and representation, but even Maria from Hammerstone said she created the company because she wanted it to exist and there was a dearth of women-centered construction companies. I have a friend that has been lucky enough to spend a lot of time on the slope skiing this past winter, and she recently posted about how important it is for women to use their bodies. 
at the risk of sounding ableist, which I certainly don't intend to be, being active, aside from just being healthy, builds your confidence. It makes you feel capable and comfortable with yourself. And yes, I think we can loosely consider sporting to be a creative endeavor. At the very least, sports are an excellent way for a girl to become acquainted with the strengths and limits of her body, especially as she grows and it changes. Specifically for an activity like the aforementioned skiing, there's an added layer of quick thinking and trusting your instincts, trusting yourself. Thanks to our foremothers, athletics are a choice American girls now have, but there are very real reasons why girls in some parts of the world are restricted from athletics or shamed for it. Heck, American girls still feel a stigma attached to being athletic, but at least it's generally accepted by larger society now. This is a fairly self-focused example. It's not feminist per se, but it is empowering to specific women. And empowered women make excellent feminists. A woman who is aware of the extent of her abilities has confidence because she trusts herself. It was empowered women that literally built Mitchfest every year, and surely not all of those women who joined on were 100% confident in her abilities. We're not exactly nurtured to be physically strong and self-reliant, so comfort in your own skin and confidence in your abilities is a fire that needs to be stoked. How wonderful to have an environment where you could put your body to work away from the judgment and scrutiny of male eyes. There is a support that exists within sisterhood. There is room for women to stretch their legs and arms. For 40 years, women volunteered to put their backs into it. They willed it so. They followed through with their own abilities and strength. Mitchfest is a beautiful example of women's collective strength as well. It may have been one woman's brainchild, but it was an army of lovers that brought women a celebration of self and the mother and the goddess every year. In addition to literally building Fest, it was comprised of women's shared knowledge and talents, not limited to physical ability. From nitty-gritty logistics organizing, to resource gathering, to work and workshop planning and scheduling, to the concerts and the workshops themselves. So much that the collective efforts of women achieved. And this collective power has the capacity for so much more than just fostering community. I think about an organization like Unchained at Last that helps women free themselves from forced child marriages, or even the female militias in Iraq, former slaves of ISIS, Yazidi women and children who were captured and kept for rape. This is women's collective power in action to liberate or, in the simplest terms, help vulnerable women and girls. They make a difference because they decided to take action. Collective power resides in the brew of what every woman brings to the table. And women know that combining our resources and sharing our knowledge is far more effective in liberation than working alone. Competitiveness either serves the ego or the wallet, but more importantly, there's little room for solidarity and sisterhood in social or financial competition. Ultimately, empowerment is a key to liberation. If liberation must be taken, and it must, we must not only raise our voices, but also be ready to roll up our sleeves. Hire women, consult with women, learn from women, listen to women, support women, build up women, empower women, Identify and build upon your strengths and organize with women to work toward liberation. We all have power. We must realize it. Everything that speaks to us as women, everything that serves and supports and nurtures us as female human beings, only exists because women created it. If it wasn't for female creatives, builders, organizers, intellectuals, activists, and laborers, we wouldn't have any of the resources, spaces, entertainment, or artwork we enjoy and depend on as women. What we need, we must give ourselves. 
because men aren't going to do it. They don't even understand our perspective or recognize our humanity in the first place, let alone possess a genuine desire to make our lives easier and more pleasing. For thousands of years, women and girls have been stifled, our growth stunted, minds limited, and our work stolen by men determined to keep female existence restricted to heterosexuality, motherhood, and domestic labor. We were denied education, training, resources, and ownership of property and our own intellectual and creative work. We were not able to create freely for ourselves. We were not able to have our own spaces outside men's homes, our own organizations and services catering to our needs. We only gained the freedom to create and control spaces, art, ideas, and female-focused services very recently. And men are still stifling and threatening us with repression in so many ways. We have to fight to keep what we have and to gain more ground while doing our actual work. Women creating things, especially for other women, challenges the history of our repressed potential and cultural invisibility. Women are the only ones who can make spaces, organizations, events, entertainment, and social services that serve, support, and understand the female experience. And without these resources, we suffer in more ways than one. We were always capable of doing and making great things, even when men stopped us. But now we're doing and making as we never have before. We have 20th century radical and lesbian feminists to thank for our present freedom and ability to create and claim ownership of our work and for raising our collective consciousness to a level where we know what we're capable of. Those women created spaces, organizations, services, women's studies departments, media, legislation, and culture out of nothing, despite the personal risks and sacrifices involved in challenging the male power of their time. We're living in a stage of capitalist history where it's difficult for most of us women to create the things we need and want. Building and creating require time, money, energy, and resources many of us don't have access to. Meanwhile, what the feminists and other female activists made decades ago is under constant threat if it still exists at all. Many of us have been conditioned to think that everything we do must be done for money, or that anything worth doing or making requires money. But that's a kind of limited thinking which reflects our capitalist society's values. Even without money, we as women and feminists can create a lot of good things for ourselves. And while we deserve to be compensated for our labor, we shouldn't step into the trap of seeing female culture and community as means to a personal financial end. At this point in time, building and creating for women and girls can be acts of resistance to capitalist culture, a form of consciousness raising where we learn to see value outside of the male money system. Feminism was never supposed to be limited to theory and thought, to conversations and the internet. Feminism in action is creative as well as collective. Feminism builds space, organizes groups, teaches women and girls important skills, and produces art. Feminism makes positive things for females as much as it challenges, critiques, and defends against males. Feminism reveals the creator and builder in a woman and inspires her to improve the lives of other women and girls with her creative powers. Feminism changes the physical world and makes it easier for us to cope with our oppression. 
So ends another edition podcast for WLRN. A big thank you to all of our guests today, both for your time and for your commitment to women. And thank you, dear listener, for supporting independent women's media. We always release our handcrafted podcast the first Thursday of every month. Tune in Thursday, May 3rd with calendars in hand as WLRN gets you ready for the sunshine and good times with our 25th edition on women's summer gatherings and festivals. Until then, I'm Thistle Pedersen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we keep our followers up to date on the latest feminist content and women's headlines. Find our Facebook page titled Women's Liberation Radio News, our Twitter, at Radfem Radio, and our Tumblr, womensliberationradionews.tumblr.com. I'm Sekhmet Sheowl, signing off from our April 5th, 2018, 24th edition podcasts dedicated to women creators and sustainers. We are 100% volunteer-powered, independent, radical feminist radio, and we thank you for listening. Donate to WLRN by going to our website, wlrnmedia.wordpress.com, and clicking the Donate button. While you're there, check out our extended interviews, like the one I did with Selma and Noel of Bloodroot. This is Julia, over and out. And this is Jenna. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. Are you interested in joining our team at WLRN? We are looking for more women to conduct interviews, write articles, do editing, transcribing, research, and more. Go to the Volunteer for WLRN tab on our WordPress site and click to find instructions for how to apply. Your Women's Liberation Radio News podcast is always produced in love and solidarity. Thanks for listening and supporting women's independent media. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home tell me where is my home cause gender hurts